else making the rounds, we will be unraveling the complexities of diverticulitis, understanding who is at risk, and exploring why its prevalence seems to be on the rise. To learn more about these topics or other general surgery offerings at Banner Health, please visit bannerhealth.com forward slash surgery. Making the Rounds dives into medical topics with those who know them best, healthcare providers. My name is Bridget, and I'll be your host for today's episode. And if you're new to our podcast, thank you for tuning in. And if you're a regular listener, welcome back. Joining me today on Making the Rounds is Dr. Andrew Najad, General Surgeon with Banner University Medicine Tucson, Director of Robotics at Banner University Medical Center South, and Clinical Assistant Professor in the Division of Surgery at the University of Arizona. Thank you, Dr. Najad, for joining me today, and welcome to Making the Rounds. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. We're excited to have you. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, so I'm a, I've been here in Tucson for about eight years. I did my training at the University of Arizona, and then I stayed on as faculty. Uh, I work primarily at the South Campus, or as we call it, Kino, uh, around South Campus. And uh, my interest is primarily in uh, minimally invasive surgery. I do a lot of uh, hernia operations, and I have a sub-interest in colon surgery with a particular interest in diverticulitis. Fantastic. Well, it's a pleasure to have you here, and and we're excited for you to be able to shed some light on this very important topic. So let's start at the beginning. Dr. Najad, could you explain to our listeners what exactly is diverticulitis? Of course. So uh, I think to understand uh, diverticulitis as we currently understand it, you have to understand a little bit about uh, what we call diverticulosis. Uh, the two are linked, but not synonymous. And so diverticulosis refers to uh, something that happens in the colon of seemingly everybody in the, in the United States. Um, but as people age, they get uh, outpouchings in the wall of the colon. The colon wall is made up of a lot of the same things that our skin and other parts of our body are made up of. So as we get older, our skin and other areas become a little more elastic. And the same thing happens in the wall of the colon. Uh, and what that does in one particular area of the colon is it tends to form these outpouchings. And those outpouchings are prone to rupture and having the outpouchings is called diverticulosis. And when you have the outpouchings rupture, uh, we call that diverticulitis. We think of diverticulosis as something that's normal, but uh, in fact, it, it's not really that normal. We, we think of it as normal because of how common it is. But the more we have kind of delved into the basic science and understanding diverticulitis, the more we realize that diverticulosis itself is not necessarily a benign condition. And so as we started to understand diverticulitis a little bit more, we've realized that diverticulosis and recognizing that is also important. Um, for many years, at least the last 20 to 30 years, it has become almost ubiquitous uh, as people have gotten colonoscopies and we've really ramped up the screening for colon cancer, we see diverticulosis in people over the age of 60 and 70 in almost 100% of people. The previous statistics said it was about 60 to 70% of the population, but the more recent statistics say it's 80 to 90%. And if you ask gastroenterologists, they'll tell you it's almost 100% of people. And that was previously thought to be something that affected primarily older people, but now we're seeing it in people in their 50s, in their 40s, in their 30s, and even in their 20s. So as diverticulosis has increased, um, diverticulitis has increased as well. One is a prerequisite for the other, so of course that happens. But uh, understanding why this is happening to people does help us understand why uh, people are getting diverticulitis. Diverticulitis itself, um, we think of it as an infection, and, and that has been our understanding of it for probably 100 years until the last 
10 to 15 years, we started kind of challenging that. We don't think of it so much as an infection anymore as we do think of um, the initial hospitalization and the initial insult as being driven by a, a bacterial response or a perforation in your colon that causes bacteria in your in your abdomen. But the response to diverticulitis, as we've tried to treat it with antibiotics, we've realized that treating it as an infection is really not the whole story. And so we started thinking a little bit more outside of the box as to how we treat this disease. You made the comment benign and you made the comment screening. So to me, those are two trigger words. So many of our listeners, if they're if they're anything like me, might be wondering, who's at risk for developing diverticulitis? Could you provide more information about potential risk factors? Sure. I think the the initial risk factor that we all thought was common was age. And so our initial understanding was as you get older, everybody gets these changes within the colon. We studied populations from around the world, and it does seem that there is some degree of that, that even people who have really healthy lifestyles, really healthy diets, there is going to be some degree of changes within the colon. And, and part of that is due to the, the actual physical nature of one particular segment of the colon or the sigmoid colon. When we think about people who are at risk for diverticulitis, the f- person that comes to mind for most clinicians is typically uh, a middle-aged man or a, a woman in her late 50s or 60s uh, who doesn't necessarily have the best diet, who may be a smoker, uh, maybe likes a lot of steak or other red meats, hamburgers and all the such. Uh, and that is who we have classically thought it was at risk for having these perforations. There is a litany of things that we used to say caused diverticulitis. People always ask me in the clinic, can I eat popcorn? Can I eat nuts? Uh, you know, can I have sunflower seeds? And there used to be a lot of thought that that was a risk factor for diverticulitis, but that has never really panned out in the in the literature as being a significant risk factor. Although I suppose if you had a diet primarily comprised of sunflower seeds, then yeah, you could you could be at risk for developing it. I think what we're seeing now more and more is that as our diet has changed in, in the United States and really across the world, everybody is at risk for developing diverticulosis. And this started way back in the 1900s when the industrial revolution happened and we started mass producing food. So it's not necessarily like every individual person has bears the responsibility that they are doing, they're not doing enough for their diet. A lot of it is a little bit outside of our control. What's being fed to us and like what is the, the food available to us is kind of been stripped of a lot of its natural uh, resources in terms of the fiber in it. And so unless you're really health conscious and adding fiber to your diet, most of us are at risk for developing diverticulosis. The number one thing that, that we've studied over and over again is uh, fiber. And fiber and lack thereof seems to be the biggest risk factor or modifiable risk factor for diverticulosis. It's not necessarily fair to call age a risk factor because you can't stop aging, uh, but you can stop uh, what you, or you can change what you eat and you can change the amount of fiber you take in. And so that, that seems to be a risk factor. Smokers are also at higher risk and, and nicotine um, and other carcinogens in tobacco seem to be uh, cause weakness of the colon wall as they do weakness of other parts of our body, whether it's the blood vessels, um, it changes your skin, it changes your your membranes. And so smoking is certainly a risk factor that's been identified. People who eat a lot of red meat, there are lots of dietary 
fads and changes in diet. And so that's a little bit of a hot topic because I think there are a lot of people who are very health conscious that do eat a lot of red meat. There are also a lot of people who are very health conscious that eat no meat. And we don't necessarily have like great population studies to know, is there a huge difference between a vegan and a, and a carnivore in terms of, you know, who's going to get diverticulosis or increasing uh, incidence of diverticulitis. But what we do know is that people who tend to have a diet higher in red meat they tend to be people who are higher at risk. Now, I think that some of that is a little bit biased because a lot of red meat is a little bit of a cheaper food source than, than say, a diet that's extremely high in raw vegetables. And so, you know, ground beef or um, beef chuck or things that are produced and a little more readily available at, at regular grocery stores, that has been the, you know, a store and a staple in the American household and in the American kitchen. Uh, for the last 70 years. And so I'm a little bit cautious to say that red meat itself is a, a risk factor for diverticulosis and diverticulitis. But I think uh, a diet that's mostly focused on, you know, meat and doesn't is not well balanced, is, it's probably safe to say that that's a little higher risk. And diverticulitis is probably the least of the symptoms, right? Cardiovascular <laughs> or cardiovascular too right. would well, probably yeah, say. Yeah, exactly. There are all the, you know, all the things your doctor tells you, eat fish, you know, don't, don't <laughs> right. eat only beef. And, and, Again, I think you're going to see, you know, with with how with how important diet is and how how much of a topic it is in in the regular media and on social media, there are a lot of influential people who really strongly believe that, you know, diets high in meat are are good for you. And there's evidence that they're right. There's also evidence they're not right. Uh, and so most of us in healthcare are a little bit reticent to to be too dogmatic about about how much meat you should or should not eat. Uh, I certainly am. I, I guess I can't speak for my colleagues, but I think if you're a really health conscious person and you exercise and you do a lot of other things that support your body, then sure. In your case, that a diet high in, in red meat or a diet high in protein, it, it may not be uh, so much of a risk factor. When we look at um, symptoms, you know, from a patient standpoint, if I am somebody that is at higher risk at developing diverticulitis or diverticulosis, what what am I looking for? What are some of those symptoms? And and as a primary care, what are they looking for um, in regards to? All right, I think my patient might have this. Here's the appropriate you know referral to Doctor Najad or the general surgeon or the GI. What does that look like? Like what is that process? Yeah, I think so. There is a very standard kind of you know clinical diagnostic picture of what acute diverticulitis looks like. And, and typically it is not subtle. Patients will come in with, with really significant, many describe as the worst pain of their life, usually on the left side, sometimes in the pelvic area. But, but patients will certainly tell you that they're experiencing symptoms uh, of pain, typically fevers and some kind of alteration in their bowel habits. Sometimes it's diarrhea, sometimes it's severe constipation, but almost always there's some some degree of, of change in their bowel habits. And the clinical diagnosis of diverticulitis is, is pretty well recognized and, and nobody seems to have trouble recognizing when somebody has acute diverticulitis. I think that the more challenging thing is because diverticulosis is so common, I think clinicians struggle to recognize when diverticulosis is starting to become a problem in that there is a clinical entity of symptomatic diverticulosis or we call it symptomatic uncomplicated diverticulitis. And because of, I think, again, relating to diet, but because there are so many changes in our diet and, and how much fast food is relatively available and, and how 
kind of a poor diet that the average American eats, we have a lot of patients that are diagnosed with sort of generic um, bowel problems. And, and I see it every day all the time. Oh, yeah, you know, my intestines don't work or I've got a touch of colitis or something, you know, that the patients come and say, yeah, you know, I've been told that I have this problem. Um, and a lot of people have IBS, uh, irritable bowel syndrome, and that is certainly a recognized clinical entity. But there are a lot of intestinal problems that have a lot of overlap with diverticulosis. And I think um, what we are starting to learn is that perhaps the diverticulosis might be one of the driving factors behind a lot of these intestinal problems. And we don't really have names for all these things yet. And we don't really have tests that really tell you. But I think for the, the primary care physician or somebody who's not really, you know, an intestinal expert or somebody who operates on the intestines, when you see patients with diverticulosis who have kind of smoldering intestinal complaints, I think it's really worth considering that um, the diverticulosis itself may be playing a big role in that and recognizing that there is this crossover. We, we talk about it, it happens in about 5% of people who have diverticulosis develop diverticulitis. But I think that the number is higher. And it's just that we don't have an ability to really capture it in real time, the number of people who have low-grade colitis, or there are a number of other uh, little less well-known types of inflammation of the colon episodes that are related to diverticulosis. And so I think the, the crossover rate is higher, and it's just a matter of capturing um, and, and getting the testing at the right time to be able to see that. You know, primary care doctors hate sending every patient to the emergency room when they start having symptoms. And so a lot of this is being managed without ever seeing a gastroenterologist, without ever being a surgeon, and, and rightfully so. So patients are coming in with left-sided abdominal pain, they're, they're complaining of fevers, they have chills, they have these constitutional symptoms, and they're being treated with antibiotics and their symptoms are getting better. And I think um, that's been that's probably the vast majority of patients with diverticulitis. The people that we are seeing are the people that fail that management uh, or don't have access to primary care. And that constitutes millions of people a year. That was going to be my next question is there, there's a lot at play here. And what does that early diagnosis of diverticulitis mean? And what are some of those potential complications that if it's left untreated, you know, when they are going to the emergency room versus being managed by their primary care or their GI or their general surgeon, what does that look like? Right. In general, People with diverticulitis are managed with antibiotics. I don't want to create too much of a frenzy. That is being challenged as well. But in general, so the normal pathway is you come in with, with this pain, you get prescribed antibiotics. And ideally, um, there is some follow-up within a relatively short amount of time. We think that within 72 hours, patients with bowel rest um, and with antibiotics should have some or near complete resolution of most of their pain. If they don't have resolution of symptoms, they need to be evaluated with imaging because the likelihood of developing complicated diverticulitis uh, versus uncomplicated diverticulitis is likely. And so as a primary care doctor, you, you see a patient on a Tuesday and that patient's complaining of pain, you prescribe them antibiotics. And by Friday, um, it, you know, a, a check-in, a phone call with that patient, are you still having the pain? Is it getting any better? If it isn't, that patient should likely be directed to the emergency department uh, for management. We know that about two-thirds of people who experience their first episode of diverticulitis will have uncomplicated diverticulitis. And what that means is there is a perforation of the colon 
um, diverticulitis happens with a, a micro perforation of one of these sacs, they don't necessarily experience uh, any abscess or collections of pockets of pus or even collections of pockets of stool. And those are the patients that are typically successfully managed non-operatively. If they don't seem to get better with medical management, then about 40% of those people have complicated diverticulitis, which means the colon ruptured in such a way or in, in such an area where pus is now leaking out through the belly or stool is leaking out through the abdomen. And those people are at high risk for needing emergency surgery or at the bare minimum hospitalization for supportive care. And if it doesn't get recognized early, then there is a crossover that happens between those uncomplicated patients to complicated patients. What percentage of them are, we don't know because we're not seeing the people that are managed successfully uncomplicated, but we, we know it happens. Um, we're seeing people not not typically from the primary care doctor's office, but from people who are being managed without a doctor who've had symptoms for four or five days. And then they come in and, and by the time they present, it's complicated. And we think hmm, maybe earlier intervention or earlier recognition of these people could have prevented an emergency surgery or could have prevented the downstream sequelae of the perforation. Um, but we're not able to intervene on a lot of those people. I think where we are able to intervene is on people who have one episode, two episodes of uncomplicated diverticulitis. I think when we're recognizing, and even if the symptoms are not that classic, but a patient that has known diverticulosis that comes back to the primary care doctor and they have these episodes or smoldering pain or smoldering symptoms or uh, weird bowel movements that, that don't seem to be able to be regulated with the normal medications or with fiber supplementation or dietary changes, those are people that we should take a longer look at as saying, is this uncomplicated diverticulitis that is smoldering? Is there a role for an intervention, either medical or surgical in these patients earlier? And, and try to prevent a lot of the hospitalization and a lot of the time finances associated with this um, and, and the morbidity for the patient. The, the financial impact of diverticulitis is, is huge. It, it accounts for one in five of intestinal uh, admissions through the ER. In 2018, the, just the emergency and the inpatient costs were almost $6 billion in 2018 in the United States alone. And that number, if you accounted for outpatient colonoscopies, PCP visits, uh, sick visits to urgent cares, I would have to think that number is closer to, to $8 million. And more realistically, 10 for all the areas that we can't capture that we didn't survey. And so you know, we use these models to try to predict this, but but the number is way higher because the number of people with diverticulosis is increasing and it is increasing fast. And it is one of the highest increasing medical problems in the United States that we're screening, we're looking, we're becoming more aware, but the number keeps going up. And some of that is because of awareness, but some of it is not. Some of it is because the true incidence of the disease is increasing. Thank you for sharing that. And as you mentioned, Dr. Najad, there seems to be a pattern, right, and a, and a trend unfolding here. So why are we seeing an increase in the prevalence of diverticulitis? And what can we do about it? What can be done? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting thing. I was doing some research, especially for cases outside of the United States, because, you know, I most of us who are passionate about this and, and operating on this in the U.S. have a pretty good idea of what, what's happening within our own country. But I think it's important to look at what's happening outside of the world and then outside of our world and then kind of draw parallels and see if we can if we can gain an understanding on a more global level. What we see is that over the last 10 years from 2010 to 2020, 
the highest increase uh, in patient population with diverticulosis and diverticulitis was 20 to 30 year olds. There was a significant increase in 30 to 40 year olds, but the percentage of increase was the highest in, in the youngest of patients. And if you look at the parallel and you look at obesity in the United States and you look at obesity outside of this country, in those same areas where obesity is rising, diverticulosis and diverticulitis is rising. So there is no doubt that part of this and a lot of it is driven by diet and a lot of it is driven by a sedentary lifestyle. There are some studies happening right now that are specifically looking at the at COVID data. And one of the things that was suggested uh, on a publication out of Germany was that a sudden change from a very active lifestyle to a sedentary lifestyle was associated with increasing risks of diverticulosis and diverticulitis. And so there is a group looking to see if, you know, was there an increase during the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, mostly because gyms were closed. Even people who are active normally, you know, they couldn't be active, but certainly diet, obesity, lifestyle, these are the biggest three things. There are other factors that people are studying that we're all a little tight-lipped about because we can't, we don't want to ascribe causality to a lot of these things yet. There are some genetic factors and we call them epigenetic factors because there's some interplay between culture, genetics, so your environment and your genetics that are causing these things to happen. Is there a family increased risk? So if your mom had diverticulitis, do you have an increased risk of diverticulitis? And do we have a current genetic model that says that? No, we don't. But we have a common sense model that says, well, your mom cooked for you when you were growing up and she cooked for herself. So yeah, if, there's, if, the, if it's dietary driven, yeah, there's going to be there's going to be an increased risk. And is that genetic? Not exactly, but it's, uh, you know, familial genetic in, in terms of that's that's how you grew up. And so it's not just in the United States that we're seeing increases. We're seeing it around the world. I think the number one modifiable factor is obesity. But but there are other factors as well. Um, and so, you know, it's it's hard that the primary care doctor always has to be the bad guy because the the, the patients come to them and they they're getting the colonoscopy reports they're seeing the patients regularly and the you know they're they're giving them these reports and and saying oh you really need to change your lifestyle you really need to change you know what you're eating and and your activity level and i feel like the the poor primary care doctors don't get the patients don't take them seriously because they're hearing the same thing over and over and over again and and i empathize with them but you know, you can scare the patient and saying you get to have a colostomy if, if you know, if you're not willing to make these changes because the the risk is real. And is that the extreme case? Yeah. I mean, and it is really isn't even that extreme. So as somebody, as a surgeon who who cares about this, I have a lot of interest in this disease. You know, I, I never want to make a colostomy for a patient. I, I know I don't want to do emergency surgery on, on this. And so it's kind of a paradox because, yes, it's a surgery that I'm passionate about, but it's a surgery I hope I never have to do um, because of the extraordinary change that has uh, to a patient, both financially and in terms of lifestyle. Having a colostomy is a is a huge, huge change in your life. And it's a financial burden. It's a social burden. And oftentimes it's necessary. So of, of the people that undergo emergency surgery, which is which is 40% of people who present with complicated disease, um, you know, they they get a colostomy. And and that colostomy, um, the chance of having that reversed is honestly about 25%. Uh, nationwide. So in a lot of these people, you're having something done, an emergency operation, and, and that's going to be the rest of your life. And there are a lot of reasons that they don't get reversed. And, and some of it is patient factors, but a, a lot of it is 
access to surgeons who are willing to do them. They're complicated surgeries. They're higher risk operations than than a lot of other operations we do within the abdomen. And so 25% is a really low number. Uh, there are resources for people, you know, there are support groups and things, but there are lots of Americans living with colostomies that are not going to be reversed. There are a lot of factors that influence our willingness to to reverse a colostomy. And it's sad to say that more often than not, though, they, they end up keeping them forever. And that's a huge change in your life. Stoma supplies or, or the supplies required to to you know, maintain your colostomy are very expensive. Having the supplies shipped to your house, having a home health nurse come to your house, it's a huge burden uh, economically on a lot of my patients. And so, you know, even though a lot of us are really, you know, we want to reverse them, we want to try and, and put people back together is, is how we describe it. Uh, but uh, it's not always feasible. It's not always safe to do it. And so many patients get left with it. We've sort of taken a different strategy. And a lot of us that feel strongly about this are more on the prevention side now, because we don't really have the ability to manage all of the, the factors that lead to emergency surgery. And putting people back together at the at the first operation during emergency surgery is is risky. There are other things you can do that to try to mitigate that risk, but it's not always feasible in every patient. And the best strategy we have currently is is prevention. So trying to prevent emergency surgery means you have to have a strategy to do, you know, preventative surgery, number one, or have a medical strategy with screening and treatment options that can actually realistically make a dent in the number of people having emergency surgery. So when we look at it from a primary care standpoint and the, the patient comes to them with the XYZ symptoms of diverticulosis, what is that screening? What is that pathway of care that that primary care provider can provide their patient during this time of inflammation as much as we want to refer patients to our general surgeons, right. but how do we keep them out of the OR? Right. So let me first just say that, you know, referring to a surgeon does not mean that, you know, we don't only do surgery. And so everybody who's a surgeon knows operating is 10% of what we do. 90% of our time is spent in the clinics just like every other primary care physician, uh, you know, four days a week, I'm in the clinic. One day a week, I'm in the operating room. So the majority of what I'm doing is in the clinic and is counseling people. And, and again, of all the people I see in the clinic, only, only 10 to 20% of them ever have surgery. So a big part of my job is, is counseling. And for diverticulitis, surgery is not the thing that we jump to in every patient. And I think that that's where a lot of times I, I feel like the the referrals happen only when somebody, the patients are like, I'm fed up with this and I, and I, you know, maybe I need surgery after their fifth or sixth or seventh or whatever, maybe it could be the first episode. Um, but I think there are a lot of changes happening in diverticulitis and there's a lot of nuances in management. There are publications by the American College of Colorectal Surgery that many of us follow um, about who should get surgery. But the decision-making is really nuanced. And really what is happening more frequently is a lot of people are being trialed on medical therapy and not necessarily just being given the blanket treatment of lifestyle change. Because lifestyle change, there's not an objective marker of it. Now, sure, if your patient comes back and they tell you, I've been doing all the things you told me to do, I feel much better, I'm losing weight, I'm on an exercise regimen, Great. I mean, that's that's what we hope for. In the absence of that, there are treatments uh, for patients that have diverticular disease, not so much complicated disease. If your patient has complicated diverticulitis, they have an abscess, if they have a stricture, if they have a fistula, 
you should send them to us uh, because they, they need surgical management. But for people with uncomplicated disease, there are medical management strategies that those of us who are, you know, practicing this and, you know, passionate about this are, are doing. And some of it is therapy with medications like mesalamine, medications like rifaximin, probiotic therapy. All of these show promise in some studies. They're not a miracle pill. They're not a, a cure-all, but, but for the right selected person, uh, they really can make a huge impact. I think for the primary care doctor, the, the other really important thing to recognize is that diverticulitis is probably the highest um, risk factor that we know of outside of a familial mutation or a cancer syndrome for colorectal cancer. It is the single largest risk factor that we have identified in multiple studies of saying patients with diverticulitis have a twofold increased chance of having colorectal cancer versus a patient without it. And so screening for these patients in the form of colonoscopy or in the form of, uh, you know, we have many, many screening options for, col for colon cancer. So screening is probably the focus for the primary care doctor. If there are not symptoms of diverticulitis and there's not abdominal pain, then screening for colon cancer is probably the biggest thing to do. For instance, in somebody who has who comes to the hospital with an episode of uncomplicated diverticulitis, we typically recommend a colonoscopy, regardless of their age, regardless of the last time they had a colonoscopy, uh, typically within three to six months. We want to endoscopically view the colon in the next few months to see uh, what's happening on the inside. And the reason for that is that depending on the study you look at, for uncomplicated diverticulitis, there's a 1% to 2% risk of finding uh, a malignancy within the colon or a high-risk polyp. And for complicated diverticulitis, up to a 6%, in some studies, 10% risk of having an underlying malignancy. So diverticulitis and diverticulosis should be red flags. And I understand the prevalence, it is so prevalent, especially diverticulosis, that you know we're following guidelines based on screening. But Having that knowledge in the back of your mind, you, you know the patient has a history of diverticulosis or diverticulitis, changes, you know, weight loss, um, melana. Obviously, these things should really, they're, they're always red flags, but they should prompt uh, a little more urgent of an evaluation. We know that these patients are at higher risk for developing cancer. And, and thankfully, with early detection, colon cancer is, is becoming increasingly treatable. But again, as diverticulitis is on the rise, so is colon cancer. Despite our surveillance, despite these things, the, the prevalence continues to increase. And then just to know for our listeners, you know, whether they're a patient or they're a referring provider at Banner Health, we have a, a multitude of specialists and that multidisciplinary approach. So not only do we work closely with the referring community, but we also, you know, work closely in-house with all of our specialists. So can you share a little bit about your team? Yeah, absolutely. So we, you know, it, one nice thing uh, about our, our clinics is that, you know, every day I come uh, to clinic, for instance, at this location at, in our clinic at the North Campus, I sit next to hepatologists, gastroenterologists, uh, you know, nurse practitioners and, and, and uh, inflammatory bowel disease. And so we're not, it's not as if we are you know, 10 miles away in a different building and calling each other, they're sitting right next to me. You know, I can, we look at the studies together. We look at the scans together. And a lot of times we come up with plans in real time. For cancer patients, we have a, a really wonderful resource for patients in, in the cancer center. Uh, we have a multidisciplinary team uh, at the cancer center, three colorectal surgeons uh, that practice really modern surgical techniques, including robotic surgery, uh, that have an incredible 
you know, track record in, in terms of not only, you know, surgical outcomes, but and multidisciplinary management. And so one thing that about a university hospital that, that I think uh, other people, uh, you know, may not know is that, you know, when you come in with a cancer diagnosis, um, we have a team of people that not only we do review all the information, but we're going to get all the doctors together in one room. We meet almost every week or every other week to discuss the surgical therapy, the medical therapy. We sit with the radiologist, the pathologist, the oncologist. We're all together in, in one room and, and the patient's not required to play doctor tag. And you, you ask, oh, what did they tell you or what, what do they want to do? No, no, we're all we're all together in one room. Um, and that really expedites the care. And it really gives a real clarity of, of what we're going to do. And and that translates to a better outcome. And when doctors communicate, the impact is huge. And so our, our surgical oncology team is excellent for benign colorectal. They, they also handle benign colon problems. And so they're, they're always happy to see patients with diverticulitis, uh, as are the general surgery team uh, and our acute care surgeons. So we have, we have a lot of surgeons, uh, all, all of us very capable of managing uh, diverticular disease and, and offering, you know, the standard of care for for patients. This discussion on diverticulitis has been incredibly informative, and it, it really is. It's such a great reminder that a balanced diet and a healthy lifestyle can go a long way in safeguarding the, our digestive health. Yeah, absolutely. And I know it sounds cliche. I mean, you know, good, clean living, easier said than done. You know, my takeaways from this as somebody who, you know, I don't just treat you know, diverticulitis, I treat hemorrhoids, I treat all kinds of digestional health issues, take fiber. Everybody should be taking fiber. And, and it doesn't matter if, if you eat salad every day, or if, you know, if you, if you really make a conscious effort to take, uh, you know, dietary fiber, you know, insoluble fiber, uh, psyllium husk, metamucil, any of these things, the value that that adds, not only in protecting you from colon cancer, but also in, in a multitude of other ways, mental health, even, there's a study out of Denmark that says that uh, people with diverticulosis are more likely to be depressed and have anxiety than people without it, four to six times more likely. So there is a huge role that we are starting to discover between digestive health and whole body health, mental health, physical health. And it's really as simple as trying to keep your bowels regular, have a good bowel movement every day. There's, there's something really rewarding about that. And I, I don't just tell my patients to do it. I do it myself. So believe me when I tell you, take fiber, it'll help. Uh, probiotics are great. Um, you can take those, you know, whether you eat yogurt or, or take a probiotic supplement, those are helpful too. But uh, don't be afraid to talk with your doctors about how you're pooping, okay? It's not uncouth. You should talk about it. That we need to know. It's a really important topic. And honestly, when you when you get it right, it'll really change your life. No, that's great. And and Dr. Najad, you, you know, you are located here in Tucson, Arizona, but everything that you're talking about, we have across our entire enterprise of Banner Health. So, you know, for patients that are in the Phoenix market, for patients that are in northern Colorado, you know, with this this is something that as an organization that we are very passionate about and that, you know, that we do have that multidisciplinary approach to to make that healthcare easier for that patient. So thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Najad, for enlightening us on this incredibly important topic. And, and your insights are, are truly valuable to our listeners, both the patient and the referring provider. Of course. If you want to learn more about the general surgery specialist and programs available at Banner Health, please visit bannerhealth.com forward slash surgery for more information. 
If you found this conversation as informative as we did, please subscribe to our podcast for more discussions on important medical topics. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time on Making the Rounds.